0: As we turn together to the book of 1st Samuel. This morning we will be looking at 1st Samuel chapter 17. It is a very long passage. For that reason I'm not going to read the entirety of the passage at the beginning. Instead we'll read sections of it as we go through. So that we will be able to easily remember what the text is telling us. This is the very Word of God. It is completely inspired. It is completely authoritative. And it is completely from the Lord. Let's pray for His blessings upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask You this morning that You would open up Your Word to us. Help us, O Lord, not to be comfortable thinking that we know all of the answers already, but rather that you would teach us from your word, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, that in seeing him we would be changed, we would be encouraged, and we would be equipped. This we ask in Christ's precious name, amen. Well, this is perhaps one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you know this story because we've already sent the four to six-year-olds off to children's worship training. They would all want to eagerly raise their hands because it seems that from the earliest of days, the story of David and Goliath is taught in Sunday school and church. But the thing that's also surprising about this story is that you could never have been in a church before and you know this story. This story is built into the fabric of our society. You can't watch a sporting event and not hear about the David and Goliath contest. You can't watch a political race and not hear that there is a David running against a Goliath. It's something that, especially as Americans, captures our imagination. The story of David and Goliath is the story of the little underdog who could. He believed in himself, and he tried hard enough, and man, he made it happen. There's only one problem with that view of this story. It's not biblical. You see, this story is not about the little David who could. David's actually a 20-year-old-ish young man who has some good physical attributes. It's the story of the Lord our God and how He brings about His will for His glory in our midst. It's a story not of standing for the Lord, but of standing with the Lord, seeing His glory. And so this morning I would like us to see three things from our text. First, we will look at the difficulty in standing with the Lord. That standing with the Lord is not an easy place for us to be, especially in our day and age. And then secondly, we will look at what it means and looks like to be standing with the Lord. When we stand with the Lord by faith. And then finally, we will see the result of standing with the Lord, what the Lord brings about and what we see and can be encouraged by His work. A difficulty in standing with the Lord, standing with the Lord, and the result of standing with the Lord. Well, let's begin then with the first few verses of chapter 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokka, which belongs to Judah. And encamped between Succo and Ezekah in Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. Now for those of you that have been with us in first Samuel, this is a broken record. Right? How many times have we seen the Philistines lined up for battle against the Israelites? The Philistines are at it again. The world is once again attacking the people of God. But it also is a reminder for us of the failure of Saul in chapter 14. You remember that at that time when the Israelites fought the Philistines, Saul gained what the scripture calls A not great victory. He had made a rash vow. He had been more concerned about his own standing before the people of God than carrying out the commandment of God. And so while the Philistines were defeated, mostly at the hands of his son Jonathan, and by the power of God, they escaped to fight another day. Well, today is another day. And so this is a reminder, I think, for us that oftentimes we can be our own worst enemies. When we think we have the plan, when we think we have the resources, when we think we don't need to look to the Lord, what winds up happening is we do not accomplish the Lord's will. And so it's uncanny how the situation here is so similar to that in chapter 14. You remember in chapter 14 there was a similar geography, even where the Israelites were on one side and the Philistines were on the other side, and there was a great ravine between them. And so now here we have a similar sort of thing. When the Bible talks about the mountains, do not have in your mind Mount Everest. Now, that's not to say that the Bible is lying or is not being accurate. It's just, you know, there are all sorts of mountains. Here in Houston, I think something about three feet off the ground is a mountain. Because we're so flat. You all noticed that during the flood, didn't you? That we're so flat. Well, here what we have are probably two hills... And maybe something like a dry riverbed running between them. But you can understand what would happen. That the military advantage in this day, and I think even in our day, goes to those who have the high ground. And so neither army wants to be the one slogging it through the valley, while the other army rains spears and arrows down on them. So you can imagine they just sit and kind of have a standoff. And as we'll see in a moment, there's a long standoff here. In verse 4, we are introduced to Goliath. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Now, immediately, Goliath makes an impression on us, doesn't he? The author is sure for us to see that, because this is a part of the longest description of a warrior in the Old Testament. The author wants us to see Goliath, to know who he is. And he is a giant of a man. Now, he may be as tall as nine feet. We don't know exactly because we don't have any ancient rulers length in cubits. But we think, according to our best estimates, that he's probably around nine feet tall. Now, the fact of the matter is, if our measurements are a little off, If he were 8 feet tall, that would not make him any less scary. I think even if he was 6 foot 10, that would not make him less scary. Especially when you have to remember that in this day and age, the average Israelite was not nearly as tall as the average modern American. So you could just imagine looking up at this man. But there's more than that. He is a technological marvel. Do you see how many times the word bronze is mentioned? Now, that doesn't mean much to us because bronze isn't exactly that exciting to us. It's not gold. It's not silver. It's not steel. But in this day and age, this was absolutely cutting edge. The difference in being equipped with bronze or previous armor was like the difference between having airplanes or not. Between having a tank at the end of World War I And not. And so he comes down. Not only is he a big, huge man, he is decked out in the finest technology, and you can just imagine what he would look like in the sun as it glints off the bronze. This armor is described as being impenetrable, it weighs more than 125 pounds. Good luck going after him with a sword or firing an arrow at his chest. And he has great weapons he has a sword, he has a spear, and he has a javelin like a weaver's beam. Now, what I want you to understand from this, when we hear that, the first thing we think is it's got to be a really big hunk of wood. And it likely is. The tip of his spear weighs 15 pounds or so. But what is really being described here with the javelin is that it has cords like a weaver's beam. And the cords are designed to give it stability so he can throw this javelin great distance. So as you see this man, and you think, I've got to get up close to him to hit him with my sword, which is going to bounce off his armor, before I even get halfway there, he's going to hit me with his accurate javelin. He's impenetrable. He's also trained for this task the text says that he is a champion and he is but the hebrew is a bit more colorful the word for champion here actually means the man between the two that is the man who would go between the two armies And we'll see in a minute, as he comes forth to issue his challenge, that this was a typical thing that armies of the day would do. Rather than have all the bloodshed of all of the men in the armies fighting each other, they would each choose a champion. And they would go out, and in single combat, the battle would be decided. And Goliath, it shouldn't surprise us, is an expert at this. He's built like a tank. He's got a gigantic sword. You can't imagine that there would be anyone else among the Philistines that would say, no, no, Goliath, I got this. I'll be the champion. No, 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 right this way, sir. Can I get out of your way? Can I get you some water? Go ahead. Goliath is the champion. And so Goliath, because of this, is very confident in himself. Look at how he speaks. And I use that word lightly. It's more that he bellows in verses 8 through 10. together. Now listen to his speech. He's a little bit full of himself, isn't he? Now we can understand why, but there's more than that. He has come to mock Israel. He says to them, "Am I not a Philistine?" Now, you have to understand what's behind that. It's as if if I can expand on it a bit, it's as if he were saying, "Am I not a Philistine?" Don't you consider me uncircumcised and pagan? Aren't we the people that your living God defeats all the time? If this is so true, why don't you come out and fight? You don't have any respect for Philistines, do you? At least not when you're back in the corner. But now out front, come out and fight. And you see, he also deliberately mocks God and Israel. This word defy in verse 10 means more than simply to shake your fist at someone. We hear defy and we think, oh, this person is going to put up resistance. Yes, but there's more than that. This word means to mock someone, to taunt someone, to scoff at someone. He is telling the Israelites that he doesn't think that they're worthwhile at all. They and their puny God. And so he says... I wish you would send a man out here to fight me so I can show you whose God is real. He's very direct. He even manages to work in an insult with respect to their king. Do you see this? He says, am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Now, servant is a way that is translated in the Bible a little bit more smooth to our ears another perfectly good translation is slave and i think that's what goliath is saying here i mean goliath is not the kind of guy to use smooth words is he no he's all about bombast and yelling and what he's telling them is you look like slaves of that cowering king you have there this is who he is now can you imagine this happening for 40 days straight Twice a day, we're told in verse 16. Have you ever been out in public when someone was being much louder and much more critical than is normal or that is customary? And even if you're not at that area of the restaurant or sitting at that table or even a part of what's going on, you're, you're, you're pretty embarrassed, aren't you? You want to kind of Slink into the chair. You want to leave. You don't, you don't like that what's going on. It's, it's very uncomfortable. It's almost painful. Now imagine the Israelites going through this day after day after day. Goliath mocking them. And mocking God. Now this is a sense. In a sense. A picture. Of what the church of Jesus Christ faces. Now. Not in the sense that I'm going to say to you, who is your Goliath? That's that's not what I mean. But if we think about a world that seems too big, that seems too powerful, a world that mocks the Bible, a world that mocks God, a world that mocks His law, a world that mocks the church day after day after day, there clearly is an analogy here, isn't there? Because that's what the world does. And if you don't think the world mocks God and his word and his church, each and every day, you have been hiding under a rock. Every day it mocks the biblical view of marriage. Every day it mocks the biblical view of parenting. Every day it mocks the biblical view of work, of generosity, of truth, of creation itself. Every day the world mocks God. And the world is just as sure and confident of victory as Goliath is. Now, this is something that we face. It doesn't matter how old we are. It happens in the schoolyard, in grammar school. It happens throughout our life. It happens when we're retired. The world comes at the church and it mocks. How do we respond to this? Well, there is a second challenge that we see in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, the worst part of what's going on here is not the bellowing of Goliath. I know it seems like it might be. But the worst thing that's going on is the fear and discouragement in Israel among the people of God. They are greatly afraid, the text tells us. They doubt who they are. They doubt who God is because they're cowering in fear and they see no way out. Again, can you just imagine, for 40 days straight, no one is willing to say a word against Goliath. And... There's even more than fear involved here. The Bible tells us that they were dismayed. That is, that they are downhearted. That they are depressed. That they are discouraged. They are afraid and they can see no way out. They have no thought of how to resolve this. Now, why is this? Why are they so afraid and discouraged? Well, the initial answer seems to be, Fairly simple, isn't it? Look at the guy who wouldn't be afraid of him. But let's dig down a little bit deeper. Who was the leader of Israel? Who did they choose? They had chosen a king so that they might what? Be like the other nations. And they had chosen a king to do what? To keep them safe. That's exactly what they had done. The job description... If they had a chance to edit it now, for Saul would be be able to stand up to Goliath. Period. That's exactly what they thought. That's what they wanted. They had chosen a man who was like Goliath. Now, Saul is not nine feet tall, but we're told that Saul is taller than anyone else in Israel. So, according to worldly standards, they chose well. They chose the tallest guy they could get to be their champion. They were acting on the belief That they were all alone. And so now they're in a spot where they think they can't do it. And so there is no solution at all. And isn't that often how we see ourselves? We look around at our plans. We look around at our resources. And if they're not enough, then we despair. Because we think there's nothing beyond us. There's no place to go. And this is further made clear in their responses to David when David comes. Because David not only has to face Goliath, he now has to face the doubt of the people of God. Look at verse 28. As David comes in, he sees his oldest brother, Eliab. And David is having a conversation about Goliath. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know the presumption and evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? Now, that last phrase is a phrase that every younger brother has said in his life. can I say anything? Right? Why are you attacking me? That poses a question to us. Why is Eliab so angry with David? Why is Eliab so concerned about a couple of sheep? He's in the middle of a battle for Israel's existence in which a giant has come and offered single combat and the thing that is most concerning to Eliab is a few sheep? No. That's not what's behind his anger. What's behind his anger is that David has pointed out Eliab's own doubts and weakness. Eliab had the same promises that David had. Eliab knew the same God that David did. Eliab knew the same stories of God's deliverance that David did. And while David is wondering, why is everyone just standing around? What has Eliab been doing? Standing around. He refuses to trust God. And so he takes it out on David. And then the next thing that happens in verse 33 is Saul gets into the act. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Now, why is Saul so discouraging here? It's because Saul doesn't see the real battle. David does, and we'll see that in just a moment. All Saul sees is the appearance. All Saul sees is the natural that is before him. And he thinks this is all about skill with a sword. He doesn't hear David when David tells him about Goliath defying God. Saul is so fixated on the weight of Saul's armor and the length of his sword and the sheen on his greaves that he can't see anything else. And then... In verse 38, do not miss this. After Saul has finally decided to send David out, what does he do? Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Saul's solution is to send a mini Saul against Goliath. Think about what that means on so many levels. First of all, he's not willing to go himself. And yet he thinks it so much depends on armor and weaponry that he wants his weapons and his armor to be on David because he thinks somehow that's going to help David. Now we need to see what's going on here. Too often the church thinks that if we take on the ways of the world... That will be the way of victory. But you see, the problem is not just in going after the wrong ways. The problem is in doubting that God is sufficient. We see here with Eliab. We see here with Saul. We see here with the cowering Israelites that what they are really to blame for here is doubting God. So how does David respond to all of this? Imagine the spectacle before David. Goliath bellowing. Israel cowering. Saul worrying. The only sane thing to do would be to join the Israelites behind the rocks, right? That's what we would expect David to do. But haven't we heard something else before about appearance? Haven't we heard something about spectacle just previously? In chapter 16 and verse 7, the Lord tells Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, in chapter 16, we were told not to go after things by their appearance. In chapter 17, we are told not to fear things because of their appearance. You see, the Israelites and Saul and Eliab, they only see the appearance. David sees with the eye of faith. You see, God reminds us that David brings an entirely new perspective. For 40 days, everyone to a man in Israel is scared to death, literally, of Goliath. And then God breaks in in verse 12. And it's it's almost comical. You've got this great scene with this giant screaming, Come and fight me, and what will you do? And then it breaks in. Now, David... Now, David was the son of an Ephraphite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse. Let's give his genealogy. Jesse had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. And if it doesn't seem mundane yet, it's going to be. Because what we learn in the next few verses is that David needs to bring some grain and a cheese wheel to the battle. You can't get more mundane than this. But there's a difference. You see, David isn't part of the army. He's just an errand boy. But we know what's lurking in the background because what we also saw in chapter 16 was in verse 13 that the Spirit of the Lord had rushed upon David and it had been on David from that day forward. David was empowered by the Spirit of God. And you see, that's the difference. And so David comes, and for the first time in the narrative, in verse 26, he speaks. And David has been in the background now for some period of time. But it's interesting that we don't hear him speak until verse 26. And when he does, he speaks from an entirely different perspective. David said to the men who were stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you see the theological lesson that David gives us? He starts with the conclusion. This Philistine is defying God, therefore he will be destroyed. So who gets to do it? And what happens when he does? You see, it's not even a doubt for David. Because the theology lesson comes at the end of that verse. He says, who is this Philistine to defy the living God? How can he mock the armies of the God? Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, David sees all of this as a man who knows God. And his faith gives language to his thoughts. And so David assures Saul that Goliath can be defeated. Now this is another passage that I think to some extent we misinterpret. After Saul says to David, I don't think you should go out on this battle, David says, now listen, I'm a shepherd. And when a bear or lion would come and would take the sheep, I would go and rescue the sheep. And I think in our ears what we hear is, Saul, listen. You haven't seen me with a sling. When the bear comes and the lion comes, not a chance. Whack them. And I go and rescue the sheep. I know exactly what I'm doing. I've been involved in battle. I've mixed it up some. You can trust me. That's what we think, that David's kind of giving his bona fides. But again, David's theology. It's fascinating to me how theological David is and how practical his theology is. What he knows about God affects how he speaks and how he acts. He says, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Now why? Because he has defiled the armies armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. It's not my skill. It's not my foot speed. It's not the rocks I choose. It's not my effort in battle. It is God who will win the victory, just as he did when he defeated the lion and the bear. Now, we have to be a bit careful here because simply stating that something is so does not automatically make it so, right? I don't want you to hear from me that you should go home today and start claiming victory over cancer and stopping treatments. Or start claiming victory over poverty and start spending money that you don't have. Simply saying something doesn't make it so. But the place where we always must begin is with faith in the Lord. Because if we don't begin there, we will never get to the right conclusion. We must begin trusting the Lord in how He will bring about the victory. Now remember, throughout the Bible, (coughs) victory looks different at different times. Right? There are times when God doesn't deliver from the storm, He comes into the storm. And so we should not be so quick to think that God is at our beck and call. But here's really the question that I have for you. If someone could hear your thoughts when you were in danger or in trouble, would they know that you had a living God? Would your thoughts betray you that you know that God is the true and living God because you run to him? Or would your first thoughts be of your own devices, of your own resources, of your own power? You see, that's what David straightens us out with. His theology is important to us. You see, David is speaking from a place of faith. He trusts God to deliver him, and he trusts God to vindicate his own honor and glory. Too often we think this is a story about how we should just have more faith in ourselves. But David has faith in the living God. And on that faith, he will act. And so he goes forward in spite of obstacles. The first obstacle was his brother. And do you notice how his brother is similar to Goliath in one respect? that he mocks and despises David, just like Goliath is mocking and despising. And then there's another obstacle to go over, and that is Saul. And do you notice how Saul is similar to Goliath in a way, and that he has the same mentality as Goliath? Both Saul and Goliath think the answer is found in the technology and muscle of the day. And then, of course, David has to face Goliath himself no one said that acting on faith would be easy if you think that someone has sold you a bill of goods we do have our actual fears to overcome we have the doubts of others that press in on us and there are threats that are out there that are real What faith does is it looks to God's faithfulness in the past and it trusts Him for the present. That is the point of David's story about the lion and the bear. God was faithful in the past and he trusts God to be faithful in the present. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. Looking back in faith enables him to look forward in faith. What Yahweh has done in the wilderness of Judah, He will do in the valley of Elah. David knows who God is. He knows His character. I think it's also helpful for David's actions that he is not the biggest. He is not the strongest. He is not the oldest. He is not the obvious choice. He's not even a soldier in the army. And because of that, because of David's weaknesses, he has learned to turn to the Lord and trust Him. His weakness has made him strong in trusting the Lord. Think about that in your own life. When are you most often in prayer to the Lord? Is it in a situation that you have faced a thousand times and is a part of your expertise and resume? Or is it when something comes up against you that you don't even know where to begin? You see, when you know you can't rely on yourself, you turn to God. And what David tells us is we should always turn first to God. We should not rely on ourselves. If this sounds like a biblical principle, it's because it is. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Now you may ask yourself, why does God work this way? Why didn't God simply raise up Saul like, I don't know, Rambo, and have him go out after Goliath, right? Hollywood puts out two or three movies a year in which some massive enemy, much taller than the hero, is defeated by the hero through luck, skill, and ability, right? Why doesn't God just do that? Saul's not a shrimp. He's taller than all the Israelites. He's got bronze armor too. Why doesn't God just send Saul out and defeat Goliath? Why does he send a shepherd boy with no armor and a sling and stones? I think Paul also helps us here in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God acts through the faith of His people, through the weak, that He might get all the glory. Now, take heart from that, because God delights in working through the weak. He does this so his strength is seen. You don't need to muster up enough strength. God is strong. And that is exactly what we see in verse 40 and following. We see the result of David standing with the Lord that God's glory comes to the forefront. David took off the armor of Saul and then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook And put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David, with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now look at what's happening here in this story. Goliath is once again defying the living God. Over and over again, we see this word in verse 10, in verse 25, in verse 26, in verse 36, and in verse 45. Over and over again, Goliath is mocking Israel and mocking God. Because you see, Goliath couldn't see past appearances. He says, what, am I a dog? Can't you send your best champion out here? Why are you sending this guy out with a stick? And look at how the emphasis is over and over again on Goliath. The Philistine, the Philistine, the Philistine. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. All of this emphasis is built up to make us see that a turning point is before us. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Now David has given theology to his brother. He's given theology to Saul. And now he's going to give a theological lesson, followed on by a whooping to, to Goliath. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Now why? Now if we could imagine David on the basketball court or on the sandlot baseball diamond, he would begin furthering his trash talk, right? Because I'm better than you. Because you don't know how to match up against a slinger, right? But what does David give as his point of emphasis? Why is he so certain that he will win? Why is it a certainty to him that he will defeat the Philistines? That all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. David knows this doesn't rely on his skill, his weapons, or even his bravery. It relies upon God's willingness to defend his own name and glory. And that, beloved, is something you can always count on. David is not replying with some kind of braggadocio. He's not trying to find his courage. You see, he wants Goliath to know that the world will know That the Lord is God. Do you ever think about your life and the world in those kinds of terms? Let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why Christianity survives and flourishes in places where it shouldn't? Like the Sudan where Christian children are kidnapped by Muslims. Like India where Christian pastors are set on fire and killed. Like China, where Christian churches are closed down and pastors are thrown into prison. Why does Christianity not just survive, but does it thrive in these areas where, according to everything we know, it shouldn't? It's so the whole world will know that the Lord is God. It's so His glory will be seen throughout the world. And that is our hope. Because God will never abandon His glory. Now there is a second and final part to David's theological lesson. It comes in verse 47. Not only that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, but and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. And now what David does is he turns from Goliath and he turns to God's people. And he says, God is the one who saves. He's the only one that we can trust. And this is something Israel should have already known. Had they forgotten the Exodus? Had they forgotten the Red Sea? Had they forgotten Jericho? The time of the judges? The battles against the Philistines before the days of Saul? But before we're too quick to judge them, don't we forget? We had those same stories. And we actually have centuries following them of God's faithfulness in delivering His church. Story after story through church history of how the Lord has kept His church and He has sustained it through all persecution and trial. Now, knowing all of that, Why is it that we're still afraid of a few politicians? Or a few media members? Or some school bureaucrats? We have the living God on our side. He is the God who saves. And the whole of this narrative drives us to the conclusion that we must trust the Lord and His work of salvation. Think about it. How much did Goliath dominate the scene here? And notice that the actual combat is actually very short. The the description of the combat in verses 48 and 49 is only about half as long as David's speech before the combat in verses 45 to 47. You see, God wants us not to focus on our enemies, not to focus on even the battle. He wants us to focus on Him. and That is the ultimate point of the story. David is God's anointed king who defeats the enemies of God's people. It was unlikely and it was not how we would have planned it. Isn't that exactly how it is with the Lord Jesus Christ? Who would have planned victory through the cross? Who would have planned deliverance through suffering? We certainly wouldn't have. We would have looked to power and might. And there's actually even something in the text that is very interesting in the parallel that it is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice how Goliath is finally put to death? Now, the stone knocks him out, or down at least. But then David goes and grabs Goliath's own sword. He's already told him he's going to do this. And he cuts his head off. He uses the enemy's weapon against himself. Doesn't that sound like Jesus, who the Bible tells us through death defeated the power of death? He uses the weapons of the enemy against the enemy. And David declares salvation is found in Israel. Now my point here this morning is not to ask you, are you ready to face your own personal Goliaths? No. My question for you is, do you trust the one who has come to bring salvation and victory for you, even when you cower in fear, even when you know that you are not able? You see, that's the point of our text this morning is to see the work of God and His salvation in His anointed King. And to know that when we are not enough, we have a champion. And we trust the Lord our God by faith and act in accordance with that faith.